this morning comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, and we'll begin in verse 4. I invite you to find your way in this, your scripture there in Philippians chapter 3. That's on page 981 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And uh, we'll be beginning in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4. Please hear now the Word of God. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. And not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Father, we thank you this morning for an opportunity now to come and to hear from you and to we thank you for your word and what you have given to us that we might know you, that you might reveal yourself to us, that we might consider even this morning how we might become right with you, how we might stand before you righteous. And so help us to understand this word. Help us, Father, to know this morning that though we this week have walked many times with wayward hearts and wayward mouths and wayward lives, that our right standing before you is secure not, not by our obedience or our morality or our religion, but our right standing before you is secured by the righteousness that you give us through Christ. I pray that you would help us to see that truth this morning, that we would rejoice in it, we rejoice that Christ has come and died and rose again, that we might be as righteous as He. So help us to hear You. Open our hearts to receive Your Word this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As World War I drew to a close, word was sent to the troops in Europe announcing a victory parade through the streets of Paris. There were two requirements in order to qualify for the parade. One was that you had to have a good service record. The other was that you had to be 186 centimeters tall. Well, as word came to a company of American soldiers, there was naturally great excitement at the opportunity to march in this victory parade through the streets of Paris. But there was one problem, of course. They, being Americans had no idea how tall 186 centimeters was. Now, some of you are already doing the math right now. Right? But they, they had no clue. They didn't know. And, and, and so they began to compare themselves against each other, back to back, see who was taller. And the company soon divided it with, amongst the tall guys and the short guys and then the guys kind of in the middle. And the tallest men were rather confident about their qualifications as, as they would taunt uh, the shorter ones. Sorry, shorty. I'll think of you when I'm in Paris, they would say. Until one day the officer came looking for candidates. 
And he walked up to the wall and measured out 186 centimeters and put his mark on the wall. And some of the men walked up to it and, and didn't even measure. They just kind of turned around and walked away, knowing that they weren't even close. Other men came up and tried, falling short by a centimeter or two. Until finally the tallest man in the company walked up to the mark and squared his shoulders, only to discover that he too was not six foot one inch. It's interesting because when comparing themselves against one another, there are many who are full of confidence. They were, after all, taller than these other guys. They were some of the tallest men in the, the company. But when the standard actually came, they all fell short. Not one was qualified. People often think about being qualified for heaven by being a good person. I, one day I will stand before God and, and I will be invited into His kingdom forever because I am good. Of course, we need to define what good is, don't we? Often people define good by comparing themselves with others. Well, I'm good because I know I'm better than my no-good neighbor right? or my coworker. Oh, I'm good because I'm at church service every Sunday morning and I tithe and I, and I read my Bible and I don't yell at my wife and I, I don't get drunk and I obey the law and I'm certainly good than, than other people I know. That's how many people define good, by comparing themselves. And it doesn't really matter if even you're, you're not as good as your no good neighbor, you just change who you compare yourself with. Right? It's no longer you compare yourself with your neighbor, you say, well, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. And even if that's not good enough, then we can say things, well, at least I'm not Hitler or Stalin or some other tyrant. The problem is that when Jesus came to this earth, he preached a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 20, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Somewhat astonishing. Your righteousness must exceed not Hitler, not your neighbor, but your righteousness must exceed the most righteous of people in his society if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. You can never, he said, never enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness exceeds even the most righteous of people. When Christ refers to righteousness, if we boil it down, I think ultimately what he means is to be right with God. There's a lot more to that term, but we could understand it for our purposes this morning. How to be right with God. I think this is in some way the ultimate question that all humans should wrestle with. How can I be right with God? It is a tremendously important question, though it's interestingly rarely a question we ever ask. We just assume that we are right with God. We assume that because we have remade God in our own image. We don't consider God to be particularly holy. We don't consider ourselves to be particularly sinful. He's kind of a more powerful version than us. And so most people live their lives assuming they don't need to be made right with God. They already are right with God unless they commit some terrible sin, do something bad. The problem is Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall never enter the kingdom of heaven. And just to make matters more severe, a handful of verses later, he said, you must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. The standard is pretty high. The question is then, how can I be made right with God? How can I, how can I have this righteousness that Jesus refers to? Well, Paul gives us two options here in our text. Two ways to find righteousness. They're both found in verse 9. He says there, uh, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. So there's one option. We could evidently accumulate some righteousness of our own, my own righteousness, he says, and we get it by obeying, obeying the law, by being good, by being moral, by being religious. And there's another righteousness, though, he speaks of here. He first refers to righteousness from yourself. Maybe we call that self-righteousness. Not to, I don't mean to put any um, negative terms on that, but that's what he's saying. Righteousness that comes from myself, self-righteousness. But another righteousness, we read on in verse 9. He says, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness, not from myself. You see this? From God that depends on faith. And so there's another righteousness, he says. There's a righteousness that comes from God. We could call this God's righteousness. We're going to consider both this morning. Self-righteousness, righteousness that comes from ourselves, and God's righteousness, that which comes from Him. The reason why Paul's bringing this up is, remember last week, if you were here, he was considering these people who are uh, potentially going to come to Philippi and begin to plague the church. We call them today Judaizers. They were individuals who would claim that Jesus is the Messiah, but in order to be saved, you had to keep the Jewish rituals. You had to keep the law, including circumcision. And Paul writes rather harshly about them in verse 2 when he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Right. And he denounces them and then goes on in verse three and explains we are the real circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and and glory in Christ Jesus. And here it is. And put no confidence in the flesh. He says we are the ones who who put no confidence in our efforts to be good. That's what he means by confidence in the flesh. We have no confidence before God in our efforts to keep the law or be moral or to be religious. But now this opens Paul up to the accusation, doesn't it? Well, of course, Paul, you're not interested in keeping the law. Because you don't do it. You're not a law keeper. And so it's very easy for you to walk around and say, hey, don't worry about keeping the law because you're failing to. You're simply jealous. Seems like Paul's aware of that accusation. For he goes on in verse 4, after saying, we put no confidence in the flesh. He says here, though I myself have reasons for confidence in the, in the flesh also. Paul says, wait a second, just be clear here. I'm not, I'm not saying don't worry about the law because I fail the law over and over again. In fact, I have confidence in the flesh. I, if, there, if anyone has confidence in the flesh, I have it. And that's what he says there. He even uh, kind of doubles down as we read on in verse 4. If anyone thinks he has reason for the confidence in the flesh, I have more. Right? The emphasis on, on anyone else. So what he's saying, when it comes to religious activity, I'll smoke anyone. I will take them down. I am better at keeping the law than anyone. You can compare anyone, anyone you got. You gather up all their goodness and all their morality and all their religion, and I will make him look like a fool. Right? Trash talking is biblical. Right? This is what Paul is doing. He's talking a little smack here. He's saying, I'm Jordan. You all play in the rec league. Okay? I'm Tiger Woods. When he used to play golf, right? You all shoot par. Right? And he's saying, I will take on anyone. I have more righteousness accumulated in my own works than any person. And to prove the point, he's going to show us what he means. And so let's consider, first of all, righteousness that can be gathered through your own efforts through your own goodness, your own religion, you'll see that Paul will say that self-righteousness is utterly worthless. It's worthless. He tells us here in verses 5 through 6, the righteousness in which he has accumulated. He has seven reasons, he says, to be confident before God if self-righteousness meant anything. The first four are things he's received. The last three are things he has achieved. 
So look at, let's look at all seven in turn. He begins by saying in, in verse 5 that he's been circumcised on the eight day, eighth day. He begins here, I think, because this is a major issue for those who are opposing him. And he says, listen, I'm, I'm not a Gentile convert. Let's just start there. Um, I was born into a faithful family that not only circumcised me as the sign of the covenant with God, but circumcised me on the eighth day as according to the law. I'm not a late in life convert. I've been at this from the eighth day of my life. He goes on and secondly says of the people of Israel. In other words, not only am I not a convert to, to God, I'm not the child of a convert. And I'm not the children of, of the children of a convert. You could trace my lineage all the way back to Abraham himself. In fact, he does almost as much when he says thirdly that he is of the tribe of Benjamin. And so not only does he know he is, he is uh, of the people of Israel, he knows what segment of the people of Israel he is. He is from the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Benjamite. And, and at this day, this would have been somewhat rare because many people are losing their tribal identity as intermarriage across tribes have become rather prevalent. But Paul understood which tribe he was. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, which was one of the most prestigious of all the tribes of Israel. After all, uh, Benjamin was one of Israel's beloved sons. Um, he was the only son of the 12 sons born in the promised land. And, and when the nation returned to the promised land and the tribes returned and the promised land was divided, the, nation, the tribe that received Jerusalem within its borders was the tribe of Benjamin. In fact, uh, when the nation divided and all the tribes went against the tribe of Judah and David's line, there was one tribe that stayed with Judah, stayed with David's throne. It was the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin gave Israel its first king, King Saul, for evidently Paul, who formerly was known as Saul, is named after. He evidently has his great Benjamite pride, if you will. He says, I'm, a, I'm, I'm from one of the prestigious tribes. He goes on and says, fourthly, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. And what he means here is that he hasn't been Hellenized. He hasn't been assimilated into Greek culture, which would have been um, a pretty uh, wonderful uh, thing for Paul to claim because he wasn't born in the promised land. He was born in Tarsus, Paul of Tarsus, right? Which is hundreds of miles from Israel. And so there would be incredible pressure as there was on many Jews in that day to be assimilated into the Greek Roman culture in which they lived. Many Jews had lost the ability to speak Hebrew even. And Paul says, no, I didn't abandon my customs. I didn't abandon the traditions. I didn't abandon our sacred language. I, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews as he lays out the things which have been given to him by his heritage. But then he goes on and, and adds to the advantages of his birth by showing his own strenuous commitment to God's law. He says number five at the end of verse five there, as to the law, a Pharisee, right? In other words, I'm no country club Jew, right? I just wasn't happy to be born into this uh, race and into this heritage and just sit back on that. I actually joined the strictest group of the Jews in my day. He would say to the Sanhedrin in Acts 23, Brethren, I am a Pharisee and a son of Pharisees. He would testify before Agrippa in Acts 26. I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. Now, we need to be careful here. Because we think of Pharisees and we think of the guys with the black hats, right? Those are the bad guys. Those are the enemies walking around. Those are the, the hypocrites. And certainly Jesus exposed many of them. But in Paul's day, the Pharisees were the most knowledgeable individuals of God's word. 
In fact, they had most of God's word, if not all of it. Some of it had the entire Old Testament memorized. They devoted their lives to it completely. And Paul knew the word backwards and forwards. He would have been like one of the prominent seminary professors of his day. But you add that, the Pharisees were not only knowledgeable about God's word, but they were um, strict in their conformity to it. They followed it to the smallest uh, letter. In fact, they added laws in order to help them from actually breaking God's laws. And so Paul, as a Pharisee, not only knew the word, but he followed the word. They even tithed on their table spices. I mean, they were strict in this. And what Paul is saying here is that I was one of the intellectual and spiritual leaders of our day. And then he goes on and says, number six, and there in verse six, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So not every Pharisee is going to be so zealous for God that they're actually going to begin to persecute those who follow Christ. In fact, Paul had a mentor named Gamaliel. We read about him in the book of Acts. Gamaliel would stand up and, and look at the church and he would advise those, hey, let's just wait and see. What, let's see what happens to this, what they called the way, what we now call Christianity. If God's in it, it will flourish. If God's not in it, it will die. We don't need to do anything about it. Well, Paul was tutored by Gamaliel. That was his rabbi. But he would not take that passive approach. He would turn in the opposite direction to his mentor, and he would rather spend all of his efforts eradicating the followers of Christ. We know that Paul approved of the gruesome stoning and execution of Stephen. Afterwards, in Acts 8 and verse 3, the Bible says Paul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and put them into prison. Before an angry mob, Paul testified, I persecuted the way of Jesus to the death. And what he means by this is he would later explain, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Of course, none of this is to Paul's credit persecuting God's people. But the point that he's making is that I not only follow God's laws, I went far beyond it. My zeal for God knew no limits. My sincerity in following after the God I knew would not end, and it took me even to foreign cities hunting down those who I considered to be heretics. Well, the seventh and kind of summary of Paul's self-righteousness is found there at the end of verse 6 when he says, As to righteousness... Under the law, blameless. Right? There's that word again, righteousness. As to righteousness, when it comes to law-keeping, I was blameless. Not, not perfect. I don't think he's claiming that. Not as sinless. But he's saying, you look at the law and you compare my life to it, and I challenge you to show me where I've broken it, where I've faulted it, where I have gone against the law of God. I am flawless when it comes to keeping the law. And so Paul looks at all of his heritage and his schooling and his accomplishment and his rank and his religion and his motives, and he says, in all of it, I am flawless. This is what gave him meaning and significance. This was his fortune and his joy and his gain before God. This is where his confidence rested and therefore it is startling to read verse 7 but whatever gain i had i counted as loss for the sake of christ in fact look in verse 8 indeed i count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing christ jesus my lord for his sake i have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that i may gain christ i don't know if you notice there in those two verses three times he says 
It all was lost to me. All my righteousness in which I accumulated was lost. All the treasure which I had, I now understand, is just trash. All that which to my was my credit is now now lost. And we know what happened to Paul, right? On the road to Damascus, on his way to find Christians to persecute them, he was found by God. And in that blinding light from heaven thundered a voice, Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And there on that day in that terrifying, pride-destroying encounter, Saul made this shocking discovery that all the righteousness in which he was spending his life so much, so zealously accumulating was meaningless. It was a loss to him. Loss, he says. In fact, he even broadens it. Not He broadens it to everything. In verse 8, he says, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's loss, it's loss, it's loss. He's actually using banking language here. So if you're an accountant, get excited for a moment, okay? We're going to talk about ledger sheets, right? The rest of us try to stay awake just for a moment, right? But what he's saying is, and they would have recognized this, is that he, he was putting all of his credits in a column. And he was listing them one by one, forgetting nothing. Everything that he accumulated, everything that was to his credit. And he reaches the bottom line. And there he looks for the sum. And there is one word. And it is the word loss. It is worthless. He adds up all his heritage, his standing among the Pharisees, his applause by the people, all of his goodness, all of his morality, all of his church attendance, all of his tithe, all of his preaching. He adds it all up and it is a big fat zero. In fact, it's worse than zero. It's actually lost. Paul says every deposit that I thought I was making into my account before God was actually a debit. It was actually a withdrawal. It was actually harmful to me. It was actually a loss. Now that's somewhat confusing because we can understand perhaps why all these things in which he done, done is not to his benefit. But why is it a harm to him? Why is accumulating righteousness and, and doing all these, what normally we would think most of these are good and wonderful things, why is this harmful to Paul? Why is this a loss to him? Well, it reminds me of that story. In fact, we, we mentioned it last week when Jesus talked about the, the Pharisee and the and the tax collector who, who walked in to pray to God. And the tax collector stayed in the back and he, he began to beat his chest. And he said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And then the Pharisee, he kind of walked up to the front. And he said, God, thank you for making me so awesome. I am, you have made me so good. And I, I mean, you are, you have done a good work in me. Because I do all that I'm supposed to do and I go to church and I give and I tithe and I, I thank you that you didn't make me like that bum over there, that, that tax collector. I thank you that I'm not like him. And Jesus asked, which man walked away righteous? Which man walked away right with God? I'll tell you, the Pharisee came in with his righteousness and left with it. The tax collector came in with none and was given God's. You see, see, when we pursue a right relationship with God through our own efforts, it actually stands as a barrier between us and God. We should be aware of this. Church attender, beware that accumulated self-righteousness can keep you from understanding your need of Christ. 
Keep Him away from you. Sin often will take you to Christ. A sense of righteousness will be a barrier to Him. See, Paul doesn't look at all that he did and say, well, these things are good, but Jesus is better. He says, they're lost. They were deceiving me to think that I was right. Do not let your righteousness keep you from finding Christ's righteousness. You who have been going to church all your life, you who give, you who teach the Bible, Please do not set that up as the way in which God will approve you. In fact, perhaps you're not getting Paul's point. Perhaps they weren't getting Paul's point. He moves, he changes his metaphor there in verse 8. He stops talking about the, the in accounting terms, and he begins to speak, uh, quite frankly, of a, of a dung hill. You see that in verse 8? He says, I have, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now, the word rubbish is kind of the edited for church version. The King James actually uses the word dung. The commentaries I read said that if Paul ever used an expletive, this was it. This is a, not a polite word. This is a word that actually embarrassed the church for about two centuries as they tried to, to ignore it and change it. It, it, means, it means dung, excrement, right? It's poo, right? That's what he's saying. Now... I'm not an accountant. All this profit and loss stuff flies right over my head. But being a father of seven, I'm somewhat of a poo expert. Right? And, and I've had a lot of experience with that. Um, I've seen a lot of that in my day. And you think I would get used to a dirty diaper. Um, but I don't. I still pretend I don't smell it every once in a while. And I'm sure you've done it before as well. And so is she um, over there. Um, and... And we just hope someone else will take care of it because it's nasty. And it, sometimes it explodes and it comes up from the front and comes out behind. And you don't know, do you lie them down? Do you hold them by the ankles? Do you burn the clothes? It's filthy. It's nasty. And it's gross. And Paul says, you could take up all that you've done from birth until now. All the verses you memorized. All the money you've given all the church services you've attended, all the sermons you've preached, all the goodness that you have done, and you put it all together, and if you don't have Jesus, you have a big heaping pile of spiritual feces. It's repulsive. It's not even neutral. It's not even loss. It's filthy. And the reason I think this is important for us to understand is there is a Christianity that is practiced throughout our country where today... Tens of thousands of people are sitting in pews just like that who think they are right with God and earning God's approval because they are sitting in pews or because they take their children to church just like their parents took them to church. And it's, it's loss. It's rubbish. And there are people even preaching sermons and teaching Sunday school classes and helping the poor, feeding the homeless, thinking they're going to earn something before God. And all it is is spiritual rubbish. It's dung. There are people who are living moral lives, decent, good people, and they think that it is all to their credit, but it is worthless. It is worse than worthless because it puts a barrier between us and God. So who cares if you attend church service? And who cares if you tithe and memorize God's Word or even teach it or are a good, moral, decent person? Who cares? It does you no good with God apart from Christ. It just separates you from Him. Your goodness will not be to your credit. Paul says it is loss. 
How many will be surprised when they stand before the Lord and say, I was baptized and I was a member of this church and I worked in the nursery and sang in the choir and I obeyed the law and paid my taxes and I did everything that I was supposed to say. And it's all going to add up to zero. Rubbish. Get through the rubbish. It means nothing. They will stand before God and be lost. No matter how righteous you are, how good you are, you will not be made fit before God. You will not be made right before God by your own efforts. And man, many of us understand this. this is, we, we agree. We, we think that's true. But how many of us are tempted to take perhaps not confidence in our salvation by our own goodness, but, but how many of us are tempted to take pride in ourselves based of our own goodness? As we feel this perverse satisfaction, we seem to be a step ahead of other people who are following Jesus. And we think, well, my commitment's stronger and my service to the church is more faithful and my decisions are wiser and my kids are better well-behaved and I give more and I sacrifice more. And before we know it, we are relieving our uneasy conscience by our sidelong glances to our trailing brothers and sisters. And slowly Christ becomes less important to us. And our delight is found in what we are doing and our accomplishments. Be wary of that attitude, Christian. Be wary of looking at your neighbor to see where they are in their pursuit of Christ and comparing yourself. Be wary of placing your joy in your accomplishments. Scripture tells us where our joy is found. It's found in Christ. It's the same place our righteousness is found as we secondly consider God's righteousness. And what Paul is going to tell us here is that God's righteousness is priceless. Look in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, on that Damascus road, Paul made not just one discovery, but two. He discovered that all his accumulated self-righteousness was worthless. It was rubbish. But he also discovered a second truth. That everything that he thought was worthless up to this point, everything that he thought was trash, is, a, is what he says there in verse 8, of surpassing worth. It reminds me of a story I came across in preparation for this message. It was in 1989 that a man was in a flea market. Perhaps you've heard this story. And there he saw a picture of a country scene. Um, he didn't care for the country scene, but he liked the frame. And so he offered the guy $4 to buy the, the picture. He sold it to him. He took it home and he tried to rip the country scene out of the frame in order to preserve the frame, but it was a botched job and the whole frame fell apart. And he thought, well, I just wasted $4. And yet out of that, that kind of mangled mess fell a document folded in half. He unfolded it. And it was a copy of the Declaration of Independence. And he didn't think anything of it. He folded it back up and put it in his drawer. Until a couple years later, he was telling a friend what he had discovered. His friend asked to look at it. And he showed it to him. He said, well, you probably should get this appraised. And so he did. It actually ended up at Sotheby's where he discovered it was one of the 24 copies printed by the Continental Congress on July 4th, 1776. 
of only which three were remaining. He bought it for $4. He sold it for $2.4 million. One man's trash had become this man's immense treasure. Now, the point of the story is not to go to a flea market, right? This is unlikely to happen to you, okay? The point is that Paul discovered there that what he once considered to be trash had become his treasure. I don't know if you see Christ all over these verses. He says, it's for the sake of Christ. Then he goes on to say, I want to know Christ, and then I want to gain Christ, and then in verse 9, I want to be found in Christ, and then I want righteousness through faith in Christ. He's now not pursuing the law, morality, goodness, but he's pursuing Jesus. He says there in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The heart of Christianity is not what you do, but who you know. And he says that Christ, knowing Christ, is of surpassing worth. Jesus himself said in John chapter 10 that I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Or in John 17, he he said he defined eternal life for us. He said eternal life is this, that they may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, salvation involves a personal, relational knowledge, knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus said the first and greatest commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This knowing God is a loving God. It is a relating to God. And Paul says it is a surpassing worth to know Christ Jesus. Do you see how radically different this is than trying to accumulate your goodness in order to be right with God? Paul says, I'll lose all of that if I could just know Jesus. It is of surpassing worth. He goes on and continues to talk about Christ and says, I want to gain Christ. You see that in the second half of verse 8. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. To Paul, Christ is gain. The gaining Christ is everything to him. So he is willing, evidently, to give up everything in order to gain him. It reminds us of the story that Jesus told in Matthew 13 when he said the kingdom of heaven is like a man who, who found a treasure hidden in the field and he hid the treasure and then went in his joy, sold all that he had and bought the field in order to gain the treasure. The treasure was of surpassing worth. Becoming a Christian means discovering that Jesus is our treasure. Becoming a Christian means writing loss of over, over everything in order to gain Christ. And this is what Paul had done. In fact, you notice there at the end of verse 8, he says not that he accounted everything as loss, but he actually suffered the loss of all things. He actually lost it. He says, I have suffered loss. And you think about what he lost, the respect of his colleagues and, and his personal safety and the security of his home and the, his, the, the applause of men and women, the position in his society, his wealth, his property. He lost it all. He lost it all. And yet Paul's saying this not in way of regret. This is not a murmur. This is not a complaint. Calvin, when commentating on this passage, says when people battle a storm at sea, they throw off their belongings in order to lighten the ship. But when they sail safely through, they wail afterward for their loss. Paul's not mourning here. Paul's not wailing here. It's not a hidden longing. And he's not doing that because of what he gained. In fact, if you read verse 8 carefully, he said, I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Look at this little phrase. In order that I may gain Christ. 
He says, I'm willing to lose it all that I might get Jesus. I'm willing to sell it all in order to get the treasure. Treasure now that I have and treasure then when I come and face Jesus. As we already seen in the book of Philippians, remember back in chapter 1 and verse 21, for me um, to, to live is Christ. To die is what? Is gain. It's gain. What can you do to a man like that? I mean, listen, infuriated his, his, those who imprisoned him. We're going to kill you. Okay. That's gain for me. Right? That, that's, that's Christ. Okay, we're going to let you live. All right. I'm going to preach the gospel to everyone, including you. Right? Well, can, you can't take his treasure away. You take everything away. That's okay. Take it all away. There is surpassing worth in gaining Christ. I want Christ. And notice that it is Christ that he wants. It's not forgiveness. No treasure that it is. It's not eternal life, though wonderful that it is. It is not one day I get to be reunited with my family that has gone ahead, though incredibly wonderful and important that that is. Jesus is the treasure. You see that? Christ is the treasure. Jesus Christ is not a heavenly slot machine that just keeps paying out blessings for you. He says, I want Jesus. Jesus is the one whom we have been made for. God made us to find our delight and joy in his friendship and his companionship. You see how radically different this is than trying to accumulate goodness and morality in order to earn your place in heaven. You see, going to church service is not the point. Reading the Bible is not the point. Singing in the choir, teaching Sunday school, preaching sermons is not the point. Get through the rubbish. Christ is the point. I want to gain Christ. I want to be thirdly found in Him, he says in verse 9. I want to be found in Christ. He just doesn't want to possess Christ. He wants to reside in Christ. He wants to be united with Christ. He wants Christ to be His new home. It reminds me of the song, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. I want to be hid in Christ. I want to be found in Christ, he says, that I might be seen as righteous as Christ, which moves us back to this theme of righteousness. You see that at the end of verse 9? Well, just look at the whole verse. He says, and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Well, what if someone could actually do our right living for us? What if someone could, could live perfectly, obey God perfectly on our behalf? You see, Christ has left heaven and came to this earth to, to become like us, but unlike us, he never sinned, not even once. Not a wayward thought, not a harsh word, not an um, inappropriate action. There wasn't a single sin in his life. He lived perfectly, and that life did please God because he was perfect. And then he gave his life as a sacrifice there, dying on the cross, not for his sin, but for mine and for all who would trust in Jesus. Sin was placed upon him, and he paid that penalty. In fact, on the cross of Christ, when he was receiving the sins uh, of, of those who would be forgiven by God, theologians call that his passive obedience. That Christ there is passively obeying God by receiving all of our sin upon himself. And it's because Christ has done that, you can be forgiven. Your sin can be forgiven. But there's another obedience that the theologians talk about. It's not his passive obedience, but it is actually his active obedience. And what they mean by that is that Christ not only died upon the cross to take your sin upon him, he actually lived a life of active obedience to God in order to accumulate righteousness, in order to give that to you. 
He said in Matthew 5 and verse 17, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to keep it, to, to do everything that it prescribes for me to do in order that he might have this righteousness and extend it to you as a gift to you. This is why 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. He takes our sin upon himself and he gives you his righteousness. You see, two things are happening here. For instance, if you were in debt to me, let's say you owe me a million dollars. And I said to you, your debt is forgiven. Right? That's forgiveness. The debt that you had against me, I no longer hold against you. You now have no debt. That's what Christ did on the cross. But what if I went beyond that? And said, so not only is your debt forgiven, I've put a billion dollars into your account. Right? I've credited to you my wealth. That's what Christ has done. He's taken your sin upon himself, and then he has given you his righteousness. He offers it to you. You can be a righteous like Christ, accepted by Christ. When he sees you, he does not simply see a forgiven sinner. He does not simply see a forgiven sinner. He sees one as righteous as Jesus. He has given us that righteousness. Therefore, Christian, you don't have to worry about being accepted by people. The gospel changes you here, doesn't it? You go about your day knowing that God accepts me because of the work of Jesus. He's looking down upon me and saying, that's my boy right there. You see him? That's my daughter right there, fully accepted by God because of the work of Christ. And therefore, I'm free not to have to earn it from others, free from the fear of not getting it from others. We're accepted by him, not because we are righteous, but because he has given us his righteousness. I think this is what Paul means when he says, I want to be found in him earlier in verse 9. You notice he didn't say, I want to hide in him. I want to be found in him, right? So being found in in something kind of implies a hiding. So he says, I want to be in Christ in order to be found in Christ. Well, who's doing the finding? Well, I think it's God. He's, he says, when God comes looking, I want him to find me. But I want him to find me in Jesus. Remember when God came looking for Adam? And there Adam, in his best self-effort, stood in a ridiculous fig leaf. Right? That, that's what man could do. Right? He says, I don't want to be found in a fig leaf. I don't want to be found in my own righteousness. I want to be found in Christ. When that day comes, I stand before God. Christian, when that day comes and you stand before God, oh, you will not say anything about what you have done for Him. You will not say, I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and I did, but I, I do this. You won't. That will never even occur to you. You'll say, I claim Jesus. I belong to Christ. He is mine. And by that, and that only, will you be accepted into God's kingdom. You see how radically different this is than trying to earn your own goodness, accumulate your own goodness to earn your place before Him. I want to be found in Him. I want to have His righteousness. How do we get it? Well, He tells us there in verse 9, doesn't He? Twice, He says, we get it by faith. We get it by faith. Faith in Christ, he says, not just any faith, just not faith in a generic God, faith in whatever you want to be, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You don't earn it, you don't work for it, you receive it by turning from your own efforts and trusting in Christ. Faith is a belief 
in Christ, but it's more than just an agreement with a set of facts. It is a surrender to him. Paul calls him in verse 8, my Lord. It is a submission to him as your king, a turning your life over to him. That's what faith is. That's why faith is often um, paired with repentance. Repentance means to turn away from something and turn towards someone. And what Paul is saying is we need to turn away from our self-effort. He's not saying I'm repenting from all my sin, all my lying and lust and anger. He says, I'm repenting from trying. I'm repenting from trying to live a good life in order to be accepted by God because it will not work. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. For the, for these for sin cannot atone. Thou must save and thou alone in my hand. No price I bring simply to thy cross I cling. There was a latter day Paul in the 1730s, college student by the name of George Whitfield. He was a student at Oxford. And he formed a club there, a college club in Oxford in the 1730s. He called it the Holy Club. Members of his club included John and Charles Wesley. And these men, they would rise early every morning for lengthy Bible study. At the end of every night, they would write in their diary, searching their hearts for sin in which they committed that they might repent of. They fasted every Wednesday and Friday. They set aside Saturday as a Sabbath in order to prepare for Sunday, the Lord's Day. They evangelized the lost. They visited those who were in prison. And these college students even gave of their own money that these inmates' children could be educated. George Whitfield himself would almost ruin his health by going out into the fields when it was terribly cold in the middle of winter, lying prostrate before God for hours. In fact, he was bedridden for seven weeks as a college student because of this activity in which he spent all seven weeks crying out of his sin and seeking God's forgiveness. And despite all of this, George Whitfield came to conclude that he was not a believer That he was not in Christ. No, he believed in God. But he was resting in all of his own work and all of his own goodness. His biographer writes, finally in a sense of utter desperation and a rejection of all self-trust, he cast his soul on the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. An array of faith granted him from above, assured him that he would not be cast out. And it was at this time that the burden of his sins was lifted. He was filled with joy and he would go, go on to be used by God to bring about the great awakening in America. He trusted in Christ's righteousness. Turn from his own. Let's, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for a moment. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. You know, we're not, I, you don't have to do that, by the way. There's, we're not creating a sacrament here. You could look straight at me. And we're not going to ask you to raise your hands or do, do anything. It's just helpful, I think, at times, not to be distracted. And, I, I, and I, I'm just burdened here that there may be one here in this room that their whole life is thinking, I'm going to stand before God because I'm a good person. My question for you as you ask God to search your heart is, Christ your Lord, do you love Christ? Do you trust in Christ? I'm not asking you, do you attend church? I'm not asking you if you're baptized or read the Bible or pray or raise good kids. That's rubbish. It's meaningless. Do you have a drive to know Christ, a desire to know Christ, to trust in Him? Not are you perfect, not do you ever get distracted, 
But have you surrendered your life to Jesus and called out for Him to forgive you? Maybe there's someone here right now who God is working on their hearts. And maybe you'd be willing to, to pray to Him even now. That you would say, Father, I have sinned against You. Father, I've been trusting in my own goodness. And I know that was not enough. So I surrender everything to You. I bow my knee to Jesus. I believe He died on the cross and rose from the grave that I might be made right. And I give You everything. Forgive me. And if you prayed that prayer or something like that, or feel God working in your heart, I would love to be able to talk to you. I'd love to be able to to kind of walk this path with you. What do we do next as we despair from our own self-effort and trust in Christ alone? Father, we thank you that it is not up to us to earn our salvation. We thank you that it is not up to us to be made right with you. We thank you that you have taught this to our brother Paul, that he might teach it to us today, that we may be right with you only by faith in Jesus, only by giving our life to Him. I thank You that You have enabled so many of us here to do that. I thank You that we can stand in Jesus' righteousness. We thank You, Christ, not only for Your death on the cross, but for Your perfect life that is credited to us. We are accepted by God. A holy God accepts us because of Jesus. May we live in light of that acceptance this week. May we walk with steel in our spine and a spring in our step with our heads lifted high thinking, Jesus has forgiven me. Jesus has accepted me. And that we might live out of that, that others might come to know Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.